Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 13th, 2020, and this is show number 801. In this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond, Bart and I start our second century of programming by stealth, or as Bart put it, what sounds like the introductory class, because it's PBS 101. We've turned the corner and completed everything we wanted to accomplish with JavaScript, and we're starting a new section about version control. In this rather philosophical introductory episode, Bart first explains why you want version control, and in a nutshell, it's so that you can experiment, abandon an idea, and roll back to where you started that crazy idea. After giving us the problem to be solved, he explains the history of the original version control systems and how we've evolved to a more flexible model that has been adopted by both the open source community as well as by big companies. This episode is a bit of a teaser because we don't actually get to start doing any work with version control, but I found it really interesting. If you didn't want to jump into programming by stealth partway through the JavaScript portion, now is a great time to start learning along with us. We also have a call out to listeners to help us come up with a new project. Version control will only be fun to learn if we have something, some code to control. We've gone pretty far with our clocks and polishing them could even maybe be more fun, but I'm betting we could get some new ideas for some fun web app that we should try to build. Think of uh, maybe an itch you want scratched. Maybe you aren't even taking programming by stealth, but you have an idea for a web app that you wish existed. Anybody can throw out ideas, so help us come up with a fun thing to build. You can give us that by, well, let's see, the best place to do it would be to join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack and put it in the PBS channel. We'll get more, uh, a little more conversation about Slack in a few minutes. Anyway, you can subscribe to Programming by Stealth and your podcatcher of choice, and of course, read Bart's amazing tutorial show notes over at pbs.bartificer.net. This coming Tuesday, the 15th of September at 10 a.m. Pacific time, Apple's having another one of their announcements. And you know that means many NoSilla castaways will be giddy with excitement. If you have time to join Steve and me and the other NoSilla castaways during the announcement, we'd love to chat live with you about what's cool, what's lame, how bored we are during the game segment, and what we can't afford or what we wish they'd announced. If you can do that, you could join us in our Discord chat at podfeet.com slash chat. This is the same chat room where we yak with the listeners while I'm creating the NoSilicast in the live show, but unlike the live show, during these announcements, we will not be interrupting the show with Steve and my audio and video. For once, I get to chat with the audience while Tim Cook has to do the entertaining. I hope to see a lot of you there. On Wednesday, after the announcement, Lori Gill will be joining me again on Chit Chat Across the Pond Light to talk about all the new toys. She is such a joy to hang out with. I think I'm actually looking forward to that even more than the announcements themselves. Last month, I wrote up all of the reasons that I think Telegram is a better messaging app than Apple Messages. After I finished that article, I decided to make a tutorial on Telegram for Screencasts Online. This turned out to be quite a bit of a challenge to do in a way that didn't reveal the private information being conveyed to me in Telegram by my friends and family, because I use it all the time. It turns out your Telegram persona is tied directly to your phone number, but you can choose to only reveal your handle to people on the service, so people don't see your phone number if you don't want them to. I realized that I could use my trusty Google Fi cell card with a different number and a different handle or a different name in Telegram. One of the best features of Google Fi is that I can pause service for three months at a time and then pause it again and again and again. Just every three months, you have to just go in and say pause. And I only pay for it when I need it. 
Google Fi costs are prorated by how many days in a month you use it, and I only needed to turn it on for a few days to set up Telegram. That's because you only need that phone number active long enough to install the app and sign in on each device after receiving the SMS message on the phone number. I created a second persona in Telegram called NoSilicast. My main persona is Podfeed, as you would expect. In doing this, I discovered that you can have Telegram logged into two accounts at the same time and flip back and forth between them. That was pretty cool. Well, next, I had to get some people to agree to play with me in my fake account so I could record it. Steve and Steven Getz are usually up for some fun, and they agreed, and my friend Diane was also excited to help. J.F. Brissett, my editor for Screencast Online, was just learning about Telegram, and he volunteered too. The tricky part, though, was to have them respond at the exact instant I was ready to record their action. So, you know, I couldn't just sit there for 10 minutes rolling film, if you want to call it, or have them respond too quickly before I hit record. That's when I realized I could talk to myself. Remember, I've got two personalities, right? I would do this setup as NoSilicast on the Mac where I was recording, and then I could respond as Podfeet from my iPad. It worked really well. Maybe confusing for the viewers, but I was able to talk to myself and have things happen when I needed to record. But then I needed to, de I needed to demonstrate how well the group features worked, so I gathered the volunteers in a group while recording from my NoSilicast account. Then I sent them a message from my personal PodFeed account asking them to respond to an incoming request in some benign way. You know, I didn't want a funny business, right? This was a crew that could do that. Anyway, the last tricky bit was trying to demonstrate how you can make audio and video calls within Telegram. I didn't think that would quite work talking to myself. Steve was the closest person at hand, so he agreed to actually be in the video tutorial as we chatted. I expected this to be challenging to pull off for all of the reasons above, but I think I did pull it off. If you'd like to see the teaser trailer, I did post a link in the show notes, but I have to warn you that becoming a member of Screencast Online is addictive. You get a free 14-day trial, but then you want to subscribe, or maybe it's a 7-day trial, I forget. Anyway, you get a free trial, but then you want to subscribe after you start watching the vast library of the back catalog. The other screencasters are all terrific, so be really careful when you go uh, ch check out the free trial, because you will inevitably get sucked in. Hi, this is Jill from the North Woods. So there I am in the midst of a pandemic, hoping that I wouldn't resort to sitting on the couch for the next six months. I exercise, but some days it can be like pulling teeth. It's even worse in the winter when there's cold days that are short and you just can't get outside. By being stuck at home and not traveling, I also miss seeing the world. So I started looking at gaming consoles, but didn't want to encourage myself to sit more and become a gigantic pandemic potato. Then I saw my local store had Oculus Quest in stock. Nothing's in stock. This is too good to be true. Oculus Quest was released in May of 2019. It is a VR headset. It's different than the other ones in that it is standalone, meaning it doesn't need to be hooked to a computer to work. It can be tethered to a computer, but it doesn't need to be. There are some other brands out there that are more expensive, have better video standards, and can run more powerful games. A lot of them have to be tethered to another device, like a computer or a PlayStation 5. And some of the competition in that area is the HP Reverb, HTC Vive, and Valve Index. They all vary in applications, technical stats. Oculus slides right there in the great price, best games, 
and solid performance range. Price was $399 for the 64GB version, or $499 for the 128GB version. In the world of gaming systems, that isn't so bad. You can order them at Oculus.com, but Best Buy seems to be the best place to order them. They get them in stock regularly and do not price gouge. Sites like Amazon and Walmart have third-party sellers who raise the prices by hundreds of dollars. The available storage on the Oculus does not really need to be bigger unless you have a larger family of users. Apart from the storage, the devices are exactly the same. The video resolution is 1440 by 1600 per eye with a refresh rate of 72 hertz. The distance it expects you to see is within six feet. That's with or without glasses. The sound is built in, but you can also buy headphones to improve the sound and keep it from bugging everybody else. The system itself has four wide-angle cameras located on each corner of the headset in order to spatially track where you are. You can use the pass-through system by double-tapping on the side of the device to see the room through those cameras. It's a very gray and pixelated view of your world, but I use it to check on the cats, get a drink, see if I'm moving around too much and I've relocated in a position that's too close to something. The device comes with two controllers, which have several buttons. When you're gaming, you see the image of the controllers in the simulated view, or you see a simulated proxy for them, or in a boxing game, the controllers look like your fists with wraps wrapped around them. It's all a little bit different depending on what you're doing. They recently released hand controls without the controllers. It tracks where your hands are, and it looks for your fingers. A few games have adopted this system. The device expects it to be used in a room with some space. It has to be lighted, and you should not use this outdoors. The sun can damage the lenses. Cleaning is always done with a lens cloth and no chemicals. The chemicals can wreck the device. I bought the 64 gigabyte version, and then my adventures began. The device is like wearing goggles with an iPhone on the end of it, with a giant head strap to keep it on. It weighs 20.7 ounces, but doesn't feel too heavy. The first step is defining the boundaries and the floor height. You draw the boundaries as if you have a virtual can of spray paint. With the controllers, you indicate where the floor is. It warns you if it sees something that you might trip on inside of your boundaries. There's also a stationary boundary for the time when you're just watching something that requires no movement, or the fishing game I like to play. If you move outside the boundaries with your body or your hands, it warns you. The first thing I was interested in was to see the world of VR. I heard so much about it, but I didn't really know what was involved. I started trying a few demos and a few of the free apps or some of the lowest priced apps. Usually the apps get good reviews. If anyone has complaints about them, it tends to be the games are too small or too short. With some of the free apps they have, I started with Oculus Video and found places around the world where you can experience amazing things. I hiked up Mount Everest, and when I got to the very top, I looked around me, and it was a sheer drop right behind me. I hung out with silverback gorillas for a while. I went into space with an ISS astronaut, and he showed me neat things about being in orbit, without making me feel too woozy. Then I turned to Oculus Venues, which includes sports, comedies, and various shows. 
You feel like you're in an audience in a theater. I watched SpaceX put up a rocket. I also saw our astronauts go to the ISS station. I visit the Monterey Aquarium quite a bit and see different parts of it each time. I also visited the filming location of Picard and was able to look around and see cameras and directors and actors. I could also see the big screen at the top, which was virtual, but it showed me what it looks like on TV. It was stunning. I expected games and fun, but this free content was really unexpected. There's so much more with YouTube VR, Prime VR, big screen, and Netflix. There are some travel apps, which include the National Geographic Explorer, which shows you some of the most amazing places on Earth. There is a space app for exploring our solar system and another one for ISS. I found an app called Wander. It uses Google Earth to produce the planet. I went to my childhood home and wandered around the yard for a while. I decided to see if I could still remember how to walk to school. I could pretty much wander anywhere I wanted to. It has a random button, so I can just go anywhere in the world. It's really awesome to see what's out there. Then came some games. I was able to become a Jedi. I would play Beat Sabers to music and chop blocks. I played some racquetball in space, ping pong, baseball. I could golf, climb mountains. There are some fighting games. I built some Rube Goldberg devices and painted some stuff. I found that I enjoy fishing games. It's really relaxing and fun. And it's really nice since I'm not really getting out in nature as much as I like to. In my virtual fishing lodge, I have fish in my virtual tank that I've caught myself. I tried a game where you float in space and throw balls to teammates to score points. I really feared when I bought Oculus that I would be woozy all the time, and so far I hadn't been. But this game did me in. Immediately, the headset came off, and I was sitting there for a while trying to bring myself back down to Earth. That was a close one. It's really amazing. As soon as you get into the dock, you start feeling like you're floating. And that really did not sit well with me. A funny thing happened to me when I was pitching in baseball. And I turned around to look to see if the hit was a home run. I turned back around to the catcher and he was already throwing the ball. And it nearly was at my head. I dropped to the ground just to avoid it. Sometimes you have to remind yourself, this is not real. This is not real. There are a few multiplayer games and some challenges across all players in a community. The games are fun, but I find the reality so much more interesting. When people want to connect a computer to their Oculus, it's only for loading other games from Steam or other applications not found in the Oculus Store. Most people, and most of the time, you never do this. Unfortunately, If you do want to connect your Oculus to a computer, you cannot do this on a Mac, only in Windows. There are a few ways to connect your game to the computer if you wish, either through an app or through a cable. People use it to play video games, and there are a few helper apps to help you play with things like Minecraft. There are some more VR games on Steam, which you can also play with the headset when it is tethered to your computer. I haven't tinkered with this much, but people say it's a lot of fun. You can also load apps outside of the App Store through a tool called SideQuest. It has a lot of free apps and games you can also play. I had to do this to get my rowing app to work. 
It's a bit tricky, but it's not too complicated to get apps from your PC to your Oculus Quest. There are also ways with Chromecast and Fire Stick Chromecast to watch what the other people sees in Oculus. You can also see it with the Oculus app connected over Wi-Fi. Then you can watch other players in your house play games. It seems like it would be fun if you had a Beat Saber competition going on with your friends in your house. But let's get back to my goal about this device. It was not to be a giant lump and to get more exercise. Since the pandemic, my step count has nearly been one-third of what it used to be. I exercise with a trainer, but she wants to see me get 240 minutes of cardio a week. I was plugging along on the rower and some other things that I bought in hopes of exercising regularly. Her rule for cardio for someone my age was anything that gets my heartbeat at 128 consistently. I get there okay on a stair climber. Rowing is a little bit harder because it's sitting. But then came the Oculus Quest to the rescue. The first thing I tried was Fit XR, which is formerly Box VR. They went in on getting fit as their sole purpose and less of a game. I had my doubts, but many of the exercises gets my heart rate past 140, past 150, and sometimes averages in the mid-130s. I asked my trainer sheepishly, is this okay for cardio? Since I'm not really pushing or pulling or using anything for resistance. And she said people do Zumba and dance all the time. What's different about this? What matters most was actually happening. I could see it on my watch. I had fun getting cardio in, and I have been averaging double the steps I was before the device and getting 45 minutes of cardio in a day. Every morning before work, I do the daily boxing workout, and in the evening, I do a random other workout. Fun. FitXR.com has more information about this particular application. There is a cost for the app, but there are some expansion packs for additional songs and workouts. Because they took the direction of fitness rather than a game, I expect to see a lot more from them. Then came another app that's in the testing phase called Holodia. It can work on rowers, ellipticals, and bikes. It uses a Bluetooth cadence sensor, Bluetooth on my Concept2 rower with the PM5 computer attached has Bluetooth. Before, I was just using it for stats, but now I can connect it to my Oculus Quest and row in simulated places like Oxford, Paris, San Francisco, or Antarctica. I won't even talk about why there was a polar bear there, but I think they were just having fun with us. It also has some weird tropical locations and some space locations. There are some races, some cardio challenges, or you can just row for fun. You can row against other players or past versions of yourself. There is a fee, but it feels really worthwhile to me. I'm able to knock out 30 minutes of rowing without constantly thinking, is it time to be over yet? Should I go do something else? It encourages me to go faster too, and not just slog through it. You can find out more information at holodia.com. That's H-O-L-O-D-I-A. The last thing I tried for fitness is called VZ Fit Explorer. This is a biking VR experience. It also can work on an elliptical as well. You essentially have Google Earth to ride your bike. They have some set places you can go. In the Oculus, you see wherever you're biking. I use this on my cheap spinning bike. 
I have biked in Rocky Mountain National Park, Ireland, some of my favorite places I used to go as a kid, and now I'm doing the Iceland Ring Road. You must buy their Cadence sensor and remote gadget for a low cost. For free, you can exercise on whatever their daily ride is. For $10 a month, you can create your own rides and pick rides that other people have created. I do find that there's some odd motions, like the pull-offs in national parks or weird steep hills that don't quite match the biking, but those are really short and over with quickly. Hiking trails with a lot of turns are also a little bit weirder. You steer your bike by leaning either your head or your whole body, or you can just have the app do it for you. I found the leaning was annoying, so I just let the computer do it. With VZ Play, they also have some games that you can play, like roping cattle, finding aliens, racing other people. Overall, this works great and makes another potentially boring workout fun. Check out virzoom.com. I did buy a few accessories, which included a case so the cats don't eat the device, and then someday I can also pack it in my luggage and take this with me. I got a cloth covering so that I wouldn't sweat so much in it. I also got some padding because it was scrunching my brow. This made it much more comfortable, and the accessories aren't too expensive. The interesting thing I bought were prescription lenses. I am very farsighted and nearsighted. There's only about an inch I can see clearly. While the Oculus does allow me to wear glasses inside the device, and it does expect me to be able to see only six feet away, which I can with my normal glasses, I found that, first of all, they fogged up when I got really sweaty. But, again, my vision is just not that great. A company in Poland makes the prescription lenses for it. They are easy to put in and take out, and I see perfectly in the Oculus now. It made the VR experience so much more vivid for me. It made exercising so much fun and less clumsy. I keep forgetting that when I take off my Oculus Quest, I have to put my glasses back on because I see so well in there. It takes a bit of time to get the lenses because Poland and shipping is just very difficult right now, but it was worth the wait. There are a few other brands out there, but I got mine from WIDMOVR.com. The people are fantastic, and the device is great. I have to say that I'm excited about all these different workout options. When my work travel picks up again, I'm going to pack this in my carry-on and work out. I no longer have to visit the small, tiny, hot gym in hotels. I know this is just the beginning of VR, and hats off to Palmer Lucky for creating this amazing device. I do in the end wish it was not owned by Facebook, But alas, there's not much you can do about that. I did use my Facebook login right away when I bought it without being pressured by Facebook because it does allow you to do additional types of connections with friends and purchasing options. So far, I can't see them using this data in any sort of way. But again, a lot of times this data use is pretty invisible to us, so it's hard to tell. I can't think of a thing in the last few months that made lockdown so much fun and so healthy. And it lets me see the world right there from my own house. I'm really excited about the future of VR. I think this is fantastic, Jill. I love this. I Okay, Tom Merritt is going to crack up at what I'm about to say. 
I believe in VR and I want an Oculus Quest now. That sounds so fun. I want to go to the International Space Station. I want to watch rockets launch and go to crazy places and bike ride and walk around my my home neighborhood. This sounds really, really fun. And the fact that you're doing it for exercise and it's working, that is fantastic. And now Tom is going to make fun of me for the rest of time. However, before I do, I should let you know that after Jill's uh, review was complete and published, uh, Tom's Guide posted a, uh, an article that says that the Oculus Quest 2 release date was just leaked, and it talks about when it's going to be coming, supposedly arriving in September. So at the very least, maybe you can get a regular Oculus for less money when the Oculus 2 is released. Maybe that's why they were available, or maybe you want to look at the Oculus Quest 2 when it comes out. But stay tuned, and I'm sure Jill will probably buy one of those and tell us about it too, maybe. We'll see. Anyway, I want an Oculus Quest, and that's the end of it. Back in the old days, I took a fair number of photos. You know, nothing like the number of photos we take today, of course, but more than most people. I know you'll be shocked to hear this, but I very carefully organized my photos into photo albums all labeled by date. I did not learn this from my mother, just so you know. The Pod Mom's photo organization technique could be encapsulated into the phrase, put them in a basket. Seriously, they were just thrown in a basket. Well, eventually I started taking digital photos, but I still printed them and put them into my photo albums. But finally there came a time when I realized this was no longer going to be practical. I began taking care of my photos on my Mac, first with the application Aperture, and eventually Apple Photos. Of course, I kept my photos in order in those applications, just like I did in my physical photo albums. I create a folder for the year, then folders for each quarter, and finally albums with the year, month, and date of the event that had been captured. Steve decided recently that it was time to start scanning in the photo albums. He started with a flatbed scanner, and it was clear that this was going to take absolutely forever. For Christmas last year, I bought him a high-speed photo scanner, the Epson FF680W. It's $600 at Best Buy right now. I'm not a fan of Epson as a rule, but this scanner will do photos at one per second at 300 dpi. I'm not thrilled with the quality of the scans, but with the project this daunting, the trick is to actually get it done, so the speed is going to win out here over quality. The best way to photo scan has been a topic for the ages, but that's not actually what I want to talk to you about today. I thought it might be interesting to you, and would definitely be cathartic to me, to describe in detail the process that we're going through after Steve has done the hard labor of scanning in the images. The problem to be solved is how to get all of the images into my iCloud photo library across all of my devices. I want the album sorting to mirror what I had in the physical albums, and I want separate photo albums for the events within the physical albums. I also want the dates of the images in my photos library to be pretty close to the real dates when the events actually took place. That doesn't sound too hard, does it? Well, it is taking the diligence and fastidiousness of two super organized people to pull this off. The pre-work for this task will be our first order of business. Steve is scanning in the images to our Synology, so we both have access to all of the images. Each of the physical albums has a nice little label on it that shows the date range, something like August 1983 to February 1984. Steve creates a folder on the Synology that matches that date range on the original physical album, but he formats it so that the folders will stay in order. You can't say Aug 1983 to Feb 1984. They won't stay in order as you add more albums. So he's creating the albums as Family Picks 1983-08 to 1984-02. 
All right, that's the first organizational thing. When he pulls the photos out of the physical album, he then organizes them into little piles by event. He set up the scanner profile to put in the physical album date range as the title of each image with an index number appended that increments with each image. Each of the events gets prepended with an index number as well. Then he records all of this in a Google Sheet. For example, there's an event called Cats, Cave, and Afghan. The Google Sheet tells me that there are 12 photos in this album and the sequence numbers are 197 to 208. Obviously, such precious memories must be preserved in that order. Now, you might think this is a wasted effort because those sequence numbers don't mean anything. But it turns out that if we're ever to keep these photos in order when they get into Apple Photos, the sequence numbers will become critical to achieving that objective. Plus, we're engineers, so like, you know, what else are we going to do? Of course, we're going to put sequence numbers. Now that Steve has a column for what will eventually become the album name, like Cats, Caves, and <laughs> Cats, Cave, and Afghan, I need to add a leading sequence number to the album so that the albums will be easily sortable when they get over into Apple Photos. In the Google Sheet, I created a column entitled Two-Digit Prefix. I put 01 for the first album, but then Google Sheets changed it to the plain number 1. Well, that's problematic because without the leading zero, sorting isn't going to work properly because 10 is going to be ahead of one. Anyway, or maybe right after one. But anyway, you want it to say 01. So I selected the cell that now has a one in it and I chose format, number, more formats, custom number formats, and I typed in 00 so that I would always have a leading zero. Now that sounds messy but I only had to do that one time in the whole spreadsheet. I selected that cell with the 01 in it and I grabbed the bottom corner and dragged down and that gave me 01, 02, 03. It did a fill down. Okay, now all I've got though is a column with two digit indexes in it. What I need is that two digit index to be prepended to the name of the album that Steve has so carefully handcrafted. That's easy peasy in any spreadsheet program with the concatenate uh, command. By the way, the only problem I have with concatenate is I misspell it every time. I always, mis I always spell it concatenate, so I have to type it twice. But anyway, concatenate basically means to smash a couple of things together. So let's assume that the index 01 is in cell A1, and the album name Cats, Cave, and Afghan is in cell 2. All we have to do to concatenate those two things together is say concatenate, parentheses, A1, comma, and then you put a space in quotes, so it'll put a space between the two names, and then comma A2. So that'll give us 01, Cats, Cave, and Afghan in our cell A3. That sounds tedious and difficult, and it's just annoying in audio probably, but if you see the equation, it's really easy. Once I'd written that little concatenate command, though, I was able to paste it into every tab of the spreadsheet, do a fill down, and I was done. It took me maybe five minutes to replicate to all of the album titles that he's created. Now we are ready to start fixing to make a plan to import images into photos. Let's review what we've got now. We've got a folder on the Synology with all of the images taken from a single physical photo album. All of the image, images have a three-digit prefix. Then we've got a spreadsheet that tells us which images by that three-digit prefix go into which albums. And we've got a nicely format, formatted album name with our two-digit prefix. Boy, I'm not even following this. This is hard, but stay with me. The folder on the Synology, though, doesn't yet know about the events. It's just one giant folder with literally 250 photos in it. We need to create subfolders with the album names. Here's where a clipboard manager, like my favorite, Copy M, 
which used to be copy M paste, but now it's called copy M. Anyway, copy M comes in super handy because in the spreadsheet, all I did was click on each album name with its fancy two digit index that was prepended, and I hit command C to copy each name. I just went copy, 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 copy. Then in the finder folder for the big album, I hit command N, and then I used copy M to drop in the name of an album, repeating the, no the new folder dance 18 more times. So new folder, paste, new folder, paste, new folder, paste. All right, I've got 19 subfolders, and that's my 19 different events in this physical album. They're named so they stay in order because they had that prepended uh, two-digit prefix. Referring back to Steve's date in the spreadsheet, I can now drag images, say, 1 to 98 into the album 01 Sailing Trip to Santa Cruz Island. I repeat for the next 18 albums. So remember, they were just in a giant stack, but now I need them into these little folders so that when they eventually end up in photos, they will end up in albums. When we go to the penult penultimate step, moving these albums in Apple Photos, you're going to see why adding that two-digit index to the front of every album name was critical to our success. All right, finally, we're ready to drag the images into Apple Photos. I conducted several failed experiments to try to find the least annoying way to get these images into photos while preserving the structure of images inside event names sorted by the index, their index and in a folder representing the original physical album. Turns out the least annoying and yet still really annoying way to do this is to simply drag in the top level folder for that date range physical album that we've been working on. This creates a top level folder inside Apple Photos with the date range of the physical album. But inside it, it creates folders for each of the events, and inside the folders are the albums with the same event names. We don't want those intermediate folders. We just want albums inside the top-level folder. We really need the photos in albums by those album names because it turns out in Apple Photos, you can't search by a folder name. So how am I ever going to be able to find Cat's Cave in Afghan if I can't search by that album name? So I really need these, file, these uh, photos into albums, but I want to get rid of all of these folders. So here we have 19 subfolders with 19 albums in them by the same name. I have to painstakingly open each folder drag the identically named album from within uh, the, the folder up a level, and then I have to delete each of the now empty folders. To my chagrin, there is no keystroke for that action to delete those subfolders. There's not even a menu for it, so you can't add that action in a keyboard shortcut in system preferences. Instead, to delete a folder in Apple Photos, you have to right-click, choose Delete Folder, and answer the confirmation dialog. The other thing that's interesting to note is that when you drag the images into photos, that action happens asynchronously. So the folders are all out of order. And that's why we so painstakingly added an index number at the beginning of each event name. Now we know how to get them back in order. You just drag them back into order. If you open an album, you'll also notice, notice that the images in the album are out of order as well. But luckily, since the title of each image also has an index number, we can choose view, sort, keep sorted by title 19 times because every album is out of order. This to me is the far, by far the most tedious part of the process and it took me several tries to make it this easy. All right, we've got one more step to go and it's actually a really fun step, 
But at this stage of my process, I put in an important step. It's actually in my process diagram here. I allow myself 10 to 15 minutes to stop working and actually enjoy the photos that Steve has scanned and I've just imported. I haven't seen many of these photos in a decade or more because they've been buried in these non-searchable albums. Not only is it a walk down memory lane for me, but I choose a few photos to send to friends and family that I think they might enjoy. All right, break time is over. Let's do the last fun step. Remember, we want the photos to have the correct date. So we've now got the photos in albums. They're organized by date range of the original physical album, and that's great. But let's say I want to search for a photo I know was, I don't know, around 1983. If I go to the Years tab in Apple Photos, all of these images have the date they were scanned, not the date they were taken. The photos also don't know where they were taken, and Apple doesn't provide any way to change the metadata with Apple Photos. But a wonderful application called Hash Photos for iOS and iPadOS from beyondf.com can do this for us. I did a full review of Hash Photos a couple of years ago where I sang its many virtues. It does a zillion things. The key thing to understand is that Hash Photos, after you give it permission, has full access to your Apple Photos library. This means that changes that we'll be making in Hash Photos to the date and location of the images will be reflected back in Apple Photos. In Hash Photos, we have the same left sidebar as in Apple Photos, and so we can see my albums and navigate to the structure I've been describing. I'm working on 1984 photos right now as I'm telling you about this process, and the physical album that was scanned goes from March to September 1984. My goal is to make sure that the images in these little event albums will show up in the right year and have at least their month be within the range of March to September. If I can tell by the album when it actually occurred, like maybe it was somebody's birthday or a specific holiday, I can put in the actual correct date. But most of the time, I'm not going to have any clue about the real date. I'm not going to know maybe even the month. For example, I've got an album that was taken the day my friend Eric got his kittens, Ozzy and Harriet. And shockingly, I don't remember what month and day that was 36 years ago. If I make every event the same exact date, like just say, okay, they're all March 1st, 1984, it's, that's not going to work because they're not going to stay in the order they were when they were in the physical album. Because remember, in all photos, they are only in order by date. So I had to come up with a methodical, if so much arbitrary method to give each event a unique date. Since this physical album starts in March of 1984, my solution is to have the first event album be dated March 1st, 1984. All of the photos in the second album will be March 2nd, 1984. That keeps them in the right order and at least has some logic to it. It sort of falls apart when I actually know the date, but I just start numbering them after that date and it works fine. So let's see how hash photos can set our dates. First, tap the event album in the left sidebar. The sidebar will slide out of the way, revealing the images within and their dates. I can see that uh, Steve scanned in Eric's kitten photos on April 21st, 2020. We want to select all of the images in this event album, and to start this process, in the upper right, we're going to tap on the select button. At this point, I could eventually, I could individually tap on every single image, or I could tap and drag to select, but there's a new select button in the upper right, and tapping that selects all 14 of the photos. Now, all of the photos have a red check mark on them, and the share icon, you know, that little box with the up arrow in the bottom left, has become available to me, indicated by changing from gray to red. The share menu has the typical options to share via your messaging applications like Telegram and Slack and all of the social media applications you use. 
But below that, we've got a list of options that are specific to hash photos. This app is really capable, so you'll see things like find similar photos, which is great for getting duplicates. You can create a slideshow, create animated GIFs, and even make cute little film strips. But the item we really care about is called Adjust Date Slash Time. When selected, Adjust Date Slash Time gives a pop-up that has fields to change the year, month, and date. And then we need to tap Adjust in the upper right of the pop-up. At first, the album will still show the 2020 date. But if you go back to the Albums view and then back into the album, you will see the new date. If by some chance you know the actual location at which the photos were taken, hit Select twice again to reselect all the images, and then in the Share menu this time, choose Set Location. You can move a map around or do a search for the city or the exact location. The nice thing is it keeps a running list of the recent locations you've entered, which is pretty handy if you've got a lot of photos that are often taken in the same place. Geotagging is so fun and easy with hash photos. The process to change the date took me a lot of words to describe, but in reality it goes like this. Tap an album, select, select, share, adjust time, type a date, adjust. That's it. That's a whole album. Just done. Takes me maybe 15 seconds total to change the date on each album. It's actually kind of fun. You can go over to Apple Photos on your iPad or iPhone nearly immediately, and you'll see that the dates have indeed been changed in Apple Photos. There's one final step I like to do just for my own sanity. I go back to the Synology, and I mark the album I just finished doing with a green tag. I even created a keystroke for it using Automator. That is literally the only automated step in this entire process. Well, you may think after hearing all the work I did here that my mother was onto something with her throw them all in a basket method of organization. Or perhaps Steve and I have inspired you to be as detailed as we are in our photo organization. In any case, Steve and I are having a blast as we go through these photos, seeing memories from way back that were buried in dusty old albums I never opened. I talk a lot about how Patreon is a great way to support the PodFeed podcast, and it is. But there's another great way, and that's through one-time donations at PayPal. This week, both Janet and Kristoff open their wallets and send over their hard-earned cash to show their support for the work we do here. I can't thank them enough, and if you'd like to be a hero just like them, please head on over to podfeet.com PayPal and show your support. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchotts. Uh, I heard you had sunshine today, Bart. What's up with that? It's weird. It's wonderful, though. A little bit of late September summer. It was 22 degrees Celsius this afternoon. Jeez. Bart sent a screenshot of Ireland with no no rain over it. <laughs> it's great because I have a what? wonderful radar app. And I was like zooming out going, there has to be rain here somewhere. Or is the app broken? Maybe, maybe the radar's broken. And I had to zoom all the way out to the north of Scotland to find some rain. It was great. That's crazy. That is nuts. Yeah, I'm, uh, Bart and I have been using video lately just to watch each other, and I see sun on him from his window. And that is just, that has never happened before. <laughs> no, no. Um, strange weather, though, because it's also extremely windy, despite being 22 degrees Celsius. So it was like cycling into a hairdryer on the way out. And then on the way home, I was getting like average speeds on a mountain bike of 30 kilometers an hour, which is ridiculous, <laughs> but wonderful. Yeah, you're glad it's that direction, right? Oh, that's not accidental. That is not accidental. Oh, okay. You, you, you ride into the wind on purpose? Always. I know every road around here because the wind determines my route, nothing else. <laughs> I cycle into the wind for an hour, turn around and cycle home. <laughs> 
Anyway. Really good. Hey, I'm going to start us off with some follow-up, if that's okay. Brilliant. We, we love so, it when our listeners uh, get back to us about stuff. Especially when we make mistakes or didn't know something, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so last time we were talking about the value of, of uh, what a six-digit passcode was worth, and we mm. were kind of musing on the idea of maybe the best way to do it is to have a six-digit numerical passcode, but use uh, tell it you're going to do a real password, just use six digits. Yeah. Uh, and, and that way they would not know that they had a large uh, didn't have a large search space to try to hack your code. They would think that they had the full search space of the alphanumeric keyboard. Um, in our Slack group at podfee.com slash Slack, which you should totally join, Alistair Jenks and Joe Prizer got into a conversation because uh, I think it was Alistair who noticed it first and Joe uh, backed him up. They noticed that if you tell it you have an alphanumeric password, but you only use a six-digit PIN, when you open up the keyboard to type in your, your or you tell it you want to type in your passcode, it only shows the keypad. It doesn't show the keyboard. So if somebody's hacking into it, with the, the the phone, they would see that it was only six digits. Or they would see it was only uh, numeric. Digits. Yeah. I, I believe that's called being too clever by half. So I think my suggestion to you was just stick like a P on the end for pin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or something of your own choosing. Uh, don't yeah. use what Bart did. Use a leading P. <laughs> yes, or an A or whatever. Yeah, one letter, something any letter. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and right then you actually do get higher entropy, right? Because you add the uh, the the extra digits, so now it's seven long, and you have actually added the entropy. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, thank you very much to Alistair and Joe for uh, bringing us up to speed on that. That was good. Indeed. And like we say, the Slack room is great because when we, you know, miss little subtle nuances, it's great to have that pointed out to us so we can correct ourselves. Exactly. So uh, the only other thing that in follow-ups is that uh, social media sites are continuing to try to fight abuses of their platform. Um, not huge amounts of changes in the last two weeks, but worth mentioning that Facebook have announced that they're for they're reducing the amount of forwards you can do to attempt to limit the spread of misinformation. So you can now only forward messenger messages to five people or groups at a go. So if you want to send it to 500 people, you can, but that will be 100 times you have to go through the forward process. So if you're very determined, you can still waste your own time. <laughs> it's interesting that they just did this because uh, WhatsApp did that a long time ago because they had that problem that misinformation tended to multiply really, really quickly. And so yeah. they just limited the number of forwards you could do to slow it down. I mean, if it's if you really need to forward it, you still will, but it won't yeah. be just like, ah! forward. Yeah, right. that was particularly problematic in India, I believe, where there was yeah. misinformation being spread that was resulting in literally murders, where there were people spreading like, oh, so-and-so is a pedophile or whatever, and there were like people lynched and stuff, and it was all done oh, through geez. either Facebook or WhatsApp. And that, that's the first place I heard of these limits being put in. It's like, okay, mm. we just need to put the brakes on this. Yeah, yeah, slow it down. Oh, huh. yeah. So, I mean, well, it's, good it's, Facebook it's very it. sign it just of... Kind of seems like it was obvious to do sooner, but okay. Yeah. It's a very 2020 thought to occur to me, but the first thing I thought was, oh, the OR number is being reduced on misinformation. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> Indeed. The other thing we have then is purely 100% good news. Zoom are rolling out two-factor authentication for everyone, not just for oh, people. Oh, that's good. Can. Yeah. Good, good, so, good. So, two deep dives, because there's very little news. Um First one is as good a news as, as it gets in, in sort of the, the COVID times. So Apple and Google have made a big step forward in their exposure tracking or their exposure notification API. 
Um, they did say this at the very start, that the API itself, as we've been using it, was step one of two. And that there was going to be a further step in the future when you were going to be able to have native OS support. And I didn't really know what that meant, and I'm not sure other people did either. But now we do. So this week, or late last week, basically within the last two weeks, Apple and Google announced that they were ready for phase two, which is called Exposure Notification Express. Mm-hmm. Now there's some subtleties in how it's going to behave on iOS versus Android from a user point of view. But the really, really important thing is from the point of view of a public health authority, their lives have just gotten way easier. The barrier to entry has come right down. So up until this change or this enhancement, you had to write a full app that used the API. So all of the UI you had to do, and you had to do everything apart from the exposure tracking, basically. And then you used Apple and Google's API for that. Now, if you're at a health authority, you still need to provide a backend to actually manage your process of verifying that people really did test positive. And that's entirely up to you to figure out your processes there. And that will always be up to you because there's no one's going to impose a way of doing stuff on the world. Uh, but then pretty much once you have your backend in place, all you have to do is fill in a config file and hand it to Apple and Google. And on iOS, you will just have OS-level support as of iOS, uh, which iOS version is it here? 13.7, which came out recently. So they don't have to write their own app? They do not have to write their own app. You just submit the config file to Apple. And then when people go into the settings for exposure notification in iOS 13.7, if they're in a place that has a config file, it'll just show up and they can just turn it on straight from the control panel. Okay, so that's that explains something because I went, I, I got thirteen point seven. I think I'm on thirteen point seven, and I heard that there was some big new deal about this. Yeah, I am on thirteen point seven, and I went in to look for it, and so there is now exposure notifications under settings, and I go into it and I go turn on exposure notifications. Yay! Continue. Yay! Select your region, and then I tell it where I am, and it goes, yeah, not you, not yet, but already. In the week or so since this has come out, I think it's six U.S. states have have come on board. So this is rolling out way faster because there's so much less work for the states to do. Because it's oh, way easier okay. to make. So a have some vote. come in. Yeah, um, they're further down the show notes. What have you got? Maryland, Nevada, Virginia, Washington D.C., and Colorado. Oh, okay, good. Mine still says exposure notifications are currently not available. Wah, wah. I will I will make one little suggestion from a programming note. For crying out loud, would you have a search for the country? You have to scroll alphabetically. And, you know, most good apps put the United States at the top because, duh, we are the center of the universe, remember? <laughs> Not this one. You is a lot of scrolling because there are a lot of countries, but I just have to sit here and scroll and scroll and scroll to get there. So I, I would like a search. If you're in a place where it actually is available, will notification services jump the ones that are relevant to the top? I wonder. Well, I got to hit United States and then I got to find my state. And luckily, California is high in the alphabet. So the second scroll wasn't that bad. But uh, Well, OK, so dear, dear listeners who are in Virginia, Maryland, Colorado, Nevada, Washington, D.C., or whatever one I missed there. Um, let us know how it goes if you're in any of those states and you're running iOS, because I'd be very curious to see what the user experience is like in a place that has it. Well, so for you, what is it? You have it in Ireland, right? Right, but we have what a full it? app. 
and our government isn't getting rid of our app because our app does all sorts of cool shiny stuff like show us the latest figures in a county by county sure, breakdown. Sure, but stuff. you might be able to see what's going on in, in settings, right? Uh, you might well, be able no, to go settings, to my settings says I'm using the Irish app. But so if you go to in, into settings and then exposure notification, does exposure notification show up? Oh yeah, the... absolutely. But it's 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 showing the, the the Irish app as being what's on. Okay, but I mean, like right after emergency SOS, I see a red thing with dots around it, <laughs> which apparently we know what that is. And then I see an exposure notifications button. Do you have that? Uh, okay, I'm in settings, which is what. What's so the top below g- the section with general at the top of it, but mm-hmm. after emergency SOS is exposure notifications for me. Oh, uh, not yet for me, but I may be about to make a terrible confession that you aren't on thirteen point seven. Yeah, I don't think I have my phone set to do it automatic. Oh no, I am on thirteen point seven. Okay. Oh no, I'm not. <laughs> Download and install. Yeah, so my phone set to do it automatically at night, and it hasn't done it yet. Okay, all right, so, but it would we'll be check interesting because next you, time you might see it in there. Okay. Well, this is good news. I hope it is. California's smart enough to. I mean, I don't know. We're busy right fighting wildfires of of the of the millennium. So. Well, remember a few weeks ago, Microsoft announced they're providing a backend that was available to every state. Oh, that would be nice. So you have yeah. a backend for free for every US state, and all you need for Apple and Google is a config file. So the barrier to entry really has fallen for the US. Okay, good. Good, 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 good. Um, so as I was saying, on iOS, it's fully integrated into the OS, no app at all. On Android, it's subtly different, but no more work for the local authority, which is the key point. Okay. So the governor of California would have to prepare one config file. When that config file is given to Apple, you just get it available through the settings app. And okay. when that same config file is given to Google, they create an app for you and put it in the store. So you still have to go download an app. You still have to go download an app. But at least you don't from the have state to write level, one. it's not hard. Okay. All right. Well, every barrier to entry is better, right? Exactly. Or taken exactly. down. Yeah, exactly. So that this is great. Uh, now, for Android, it's coming with the next version of Android later this month. So they're not quite there yet. But nonetheless, pro- definite, definite progress. So good, thought, good, 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 good. Meanwhile, you can still write traditional apps, right? If, you, if your local health authority wants to do more, uh, you can still write a traditional app using the API. So none of that's going away. Uh, so Scotland have now gotten a full-fledged app, and so have England and Wales. And England and Wales actually did something that I think is very clever, which is astonishing given England's track record to date. They've added in QR codes so that places can have little QR codes up to do logging of people for contact tracing. So you just blip. That's nice. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are places that won't want to do that, that don't want to write down who is where. And, and, you know, in the UK, there's a legal requirement they keep a manual log at the moment. Okay. So now they can, they still have to have a log for people who don't want to do their phone, but for anyone who but wants an easier experience. it's not scribbling down a piece of paper or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so you can just yeah. scan the QR code. So that, that I think is brilliant. So I'm sure there are places where I live that have uh, people who are refusing, would refuse to do that. And I'm course. sure we don't have any mandate about it. Uh, but boy, that would make the, the proprietor's job easier if you could just scan as you walk in. Yeah, so again, that's you know, I'm delighted to say that take two of the English app seems to be an awful, 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 awful lot better than take one. So thank you. <laughs> they got religion. That's good. That yeah. Well, get. they hired a okay. former Apple engineer to run the project. Oh, <laughs> that did help. Oh, there we go. And uh, deep dive number two, I'm afraid, is is less good news and a little bit murky still, which I don't like. So 
A name that is very familiar to people who follow security and Apple is Patrick Wardle. He's an extremely accomplished security researcher who's found some really great stuff right to the Mac. And he was browsing homebrew, as one does when you're a Mac nerd, Mm -hmm. and was surprised to find a malware ad on homebrew. So someone had paid to put an ad on homebrew, and they had succeeded in putting Mac malware into that ad. Uh, hang on, I'm a little confused. Uh, Homebrew's a command line package manager, yes, so I but they type have a website, brew space right? install blah. How did right? But they have a homepage. The, okay, the homepage for it. Okay, so yeah. it's not in the app. It's not in the package manager. It's on the website. Yeah. So you went to the web. There was a web ad, and it contained Mac malware. Mm. What was worse is it was notarized. So back us up. What mm-hmm. does notarization actually mean? Okay, so notarization, if if you think about what something, think about the real world. What does it mean to have something notarized in the real world? It means that you take somebody my driver's license and I sign and that other person is notarizing that they, that it was me who did it. Correct. Who signed. So app notarization means that you as a developer digitally sign your app, you hand it to Apple, Apple do a malware scan, and then they digitally sign it to say that this app is by you and we, Apple, have scanned it for malware. So the app is now notarized. So I understood that they notarized it as in they said it was Bart who wrote this. I did not understand that they said they also scanned for malware. That's the difference between the old signatures and the new notarization. Okay, so digital signature was Bart wrote this and that's all I'm saying. But notarized is Bart wrote this and I ran a, a malware scan. Yeah, so basically app notarization is half of an app store approval. So all of the policies are ignored, but the technical limitations are tested for. Technical limitations of, well, not really, just malware. No, no, when you submit an app to the app store, Apple automate a bunch of malware scans, and then it goes to a human to make sure it meets all the rules. With app notarization, the rules don't count because you're not going into the store. But mm-hmm. all of the technical protections is what you get notarized. Security protections, not yes. Technicals yeah. a little a little broad. Uh, it might not do what they the you said scan. it did. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, okay. I, I should have just left it at the nice and generic malware scan. Yeah, but it's the okay. protections that Apple. It's half of the protections that Apple provides in the App Store. It's the half that are technical rather than policy. So this means they have a problem in their malware scanning. Is all right. I mean, which is certainly good, a thing but... it means. That's one of the things it means. So that was interesting. It was a particular, what was very strange about it was that it wasn't something obscure. It was OSX Shylayer, or SHLayer, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it, which is probably the single most prolific piece of malware in 2019. Oh. Like if you Google for it, it's everywhere. So this is not in any way oh. obscure. It's not like some new weird malware they just didn't oh. know about. No, hmm. um, it's it's a real classic. It's a Trojan that presents itself as a Flash installer. This oh, website on. needs you to install Flash. And then it basically installs a bunch of adware on your computer. So a real blast from the past. Yeah. So that was weird. So Patrick Wardle being Patrick Wardle did the appropriate thing and reported it to Apple and the developer certificate was revoked. And two days later, the malware campaign was up and running again with the same malware, again notarized, just with a different Apple developer ID. On uh, on the same website? Uh, that I, that he didn't say in his blog post explicitly, but he said this, the campaign was up and running again. So where he found the hmm. malware, I don't know. But basically, they, they, the same group of attackers were at it again. 
with, and with Apple f- hasn't made any response about how they could miss something this obvious? Not publicly. Hmm. So since August 30th, Patrick Wardle's blog post has no more updates. So I don't know what happened next. And it's like September 13th, 14th or 13th or something as we record. Yeah. So I could only assume that this is in hand because it's obviously not that there are thousands of Macs around the planet being hacked every day or we'd have heard something. Mm-hmm. So one assumes the game of cat and mouse has, has you know, the cat has won again. Uh, but to me, this is interesting because it implies that the attackers had two things. They had a cache of stolen developer account credentials, because how else can you get stuff signed with multiple developer IDs so quickly? And also, if they were using their own developer ID, the, you know, the FBI would have picked them up by now and we might have heard something about that. Mm-hmm. So obviously some random developer somewhere had a very bad day when they got a phone call from Apple saying, yeah, we've just cancelled your developer account. All of your all of your apps are gone. Um, Maybe and- it was Epic's. Oh, sorry. Oh, that'd be- <laughs> it wasn't. Um, but yeah, that would be funny. Um, but the other thing they clearly had was a technique for obfuscating well-known malware so that the scanner would see through it or see past it or see around it. And the, right? Because it got notarized, even though it was really, really, really obvious malware. And the second time it was re-notarized after Apple had removed the first offending app. So that means it was after Apple were told about the problem, it it wasn't gone. So maybe it took Apple a few days to fix it. And then if they, you know, maybe they tried again the next day and they failed. I don't know, because we've no more update for Patrick Wardle, which may be because... there's responsible disclosure about to happen and we'll find out everything next week. Hmm. But it's certainly interesting. And I think the real takeaway here is that the old advice, like, you know, gatekeeper, all this stuff makes the Mac less unsafe. But it's never perfect. Like it is possible that Fort Knox could be robbed someday. It is possible to break into Apple's walled garden. You know, and Apple will do their best to clean up and Apple will protect you, but they're not perfect. So if you go to a website and you didn't go there with the express purpose of downloading Flash and it offers you Flash, the answer is no. If you go to a website and it offers you something you didn't go looking for, the answer is no. And that was our advice for years. And to some extent, we got a bit lax about it because Gatekeeper had our back. But this is a timely reminder. The advice stands. The answer is still no. Yeah, I I don't want to give them any kind of a pass on this, though. It's sort of like, you know, you talked me into wearing a seatbelt all the time because you promised me that this percentage of deaths by car accident would not happen to me. And then you're like, oh, yeah, sorry, except when you're turning left. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I mean, I don't think Apple ever promised that Gatekeeper was perfect. And Gatekeeper has definitely stopped a lot of malware. Right. Sure, but I would really like them to have. Fixed we don't know this how this ends yet. Told right? us, right? But you're right. From August 30th to September 13th is a long time to not answer. Right, but Patrick Wardle has gone quiet too. So if the answer from Apple had been no, we're doing nothing, he would have posted back saying, "True, how dare yeah. Apple do nothing?" The He's absence of information silent. in this case is encouraging. <laughs> it is to me, actually. Yes. Yeah. Huh. So. 
I'm going to keep an eye on it. Uh, it made all the news the first time. No one mentioned it the second time. And now it's all gone silent, which was very frustrating when preparing my show notes. Right. I know but, you like it when you can wrap it in a bow and tell us what it yeah. means and tell us what to do about it. The answer is don't click on stuff you didn't ask for, but still. Exactly. So that's that's how I managed to wrap it in a vague bow-esque thing, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So, on to action alerts. It has been Patch Tuesday. Microsoft patched many things. Apply those patches. Those many things include Windows, IE, and Edge. Hmm. IE's still getting patched, huh? Yeah, it's still officially supported until January 2020, I believe. I don't we're care. In, my We're in September of 2020, Bart. That was nine oh. months ago. Anyway, I don't support it now, so I don't care. <laughs> It must be 2021 or 2022 is when it'll be supported till. I, yes. We just don't care. I just don't care, actually. Yeah, it must be be January 2021. Okay. Must be. Yeah, sorry. Ah, I still think it's March 500th of 2020. (laughs) It's Blur's Day. Yeah. Um, Slack patched a critical bug in their Windows, Linux, and Mac desktop clients. So... Mm. Make sure that, I, I think they auto-update themselves, but you may have to turn the app off and on again, and I tend to leave that app open for weeks on end. So yeah. it might just be time to turn off Slack and turn it on again. Yeah. All right. Quitting and going back in right now. Wait, updates. Do we have the updates? I must have done it. No, I don't see an update in a long time. All the stuff I've updated recently. Well, hmm. the Slack app, is it not self-updating internally? Oh, Maybe. Well, well, I actually, quit. no, it depends no. on whether you got it through the App Store or not, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I think I got it from the App Store, but I'm going to open well, it. Well, as long as it's greater than version 4.4, and mine is, then you're good. All right. Well, maybe it did a while ago. Oh, I'm on 4.8. So, yeah, 4.8.0, build ending in 9.2 is where I am. Okay. All right, good. Yeah, mine says App Store. Yeah, I should probably turn that off or it'll start bunging at me. Um <laughs> I should put myself in Do Not Disturb mode as well, really, shouldn't I? <laughs> That's the way to go. That's eh, an option. Yeah. Okay. Um, worthy warnings. This is sort of at the edge of what we do in security bits, but physical tech not killing you is kind of in our ballpark, I think. CNN investigation finds Amazon Basics projects da- products dangerous. This really surprised me. That just because it says it's Amazon Basics doesn't actually mean it's been quality controlled in some cases. Sometimes they're too basic to be safe. I Hmm. did not expect this, but it's not like CNN is a fly-by-night British tabloid. So this definitely caught my eye and I thought it was worth sharing. Yeah, I I read about that. The the specific thing, or I, I mean, I saw the article on CNN. The specific thing they were talking about was fire hazard. And yeah. the the assumption is that at this point Amazon does not have the ability to vet the third party products that it that it sells, but yeah, you sort of hope it, right? that if it's yeah. at Amazon Basic that you could be sure of testing those. And they were they were products that people had alerted them to the fact that these things were catching on fire. Like there were there were reviews saying this caught on fire or, or you know, was, had exploding bits. or they, they, had a, they had been alerted to the concern and had not taken the products down. And they were their own products. So it's kind of like, well, we kind of give you a pass on the other stuff because it's too hard, but you really should be doing this. Yeah, kind of is being quite generous with them. I mean, I know there's a tough time for them at the moment and they're under a lot of strain with half the planet going, well, I don't want to go to a shop. I'll click this button in my browser instead. 
And Amazon Basics, you sort of figure that's recommended. Uh, I'm looking yeah. at the Tidbits article you uh, pointed to that talks about it. Uh, CNN discovered more than 1,500 reviews on Amazon's own site documenting these and similar concerning issues, including, quote, flames shooting out of a surge protector, quote, leading, leaking and exploding batteries, quote, USB cables bursting into flames, quote, paper shredders exploding, and quote, microwaves catching on fire. That's pretty bad. Yeah, it's not like, oh, this cable frayed. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Amazon, come on. Yeah, so I guess you do need to read the reviews. Yeah, yeah. Look for the ones that don't say explodey bits. Yeah. Um, notable news then. Um, Apple announced a whole bunch of developer-related changes, and most of it is getting news for all different reasons, but there are actually privacy implications to some of the news that's being overlooked, so I thought we'd focus on the privacy bit and overlook the bit that's, you know, no mention of Epic here. Um. So the first thing is that Apple have released guidelines for developers to help them fill in that privacy nutrition label that they all have to have for the iOS 14 app store that I'm sure we're getting any day now. So that's helpful to developers. Um, Less helpful for us, the end user, after Facebook kicked up a stink and joined by a few others, Apple have agreed to delay the iOS 14 privacy feature that would require explicit opt-in to cross-app tracking. That makes me very cranky. Yeah. As soon as I heard that the the option to turn off or you have to opt in to cross app tracking and Facebook was really mad about it, I was like, I don't even need to understand what that one means to know that I like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the company you keep causes the uh, the answer. But uh, yeah, apparently Facebook and others made the made the case that they needed more time to implement this into their products. As long as Apple don't back down all the way, so they're saying it is coming in 2021, but they're they're backing off for now. So I they haven't abandoned it. So I'm not utterly cranky, but I'm still mildly cranky because they told us in WWDC. So why would Facebook using that time? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, and you know, I'm sympathetic to companies having their business model wrecked by the actions of of a behemoth other company, and yet. I'm not as sympathetic in this because I really wish you hadn't built your business model on the backs of of tracking me on the internet. You know, it's actually, I, the, I think the subtle distinction for me is that if your business model involves not telling the users what you're doing, because if the users knew they'd hate it, then your business <laughs> model's wrong. And what Apple were doing here is removing the secrecy. Well, and uh, not just removing the secrecy. So they're not just showing it to you. They're making you choose it. Right, but if it was something innocuous, known, you would uh, people would yes. be angry at Apple for wasting their time. But they're not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my friend Diane just uh, asked, uh, we have a weekly Zoom cocktail party and we have an agenda to make sure we don't talk about the elephant in the room. And that, having that agenda has really been a great way to focus away from yeah, what I, everybody I, talks about. I really about. like that, actually. I, I might see if I can convince my family of that, because we have a weekly Zoom call, and everyone tries to avoid the elephant for about three minutes, and then the elephant just, goes... Rrr. Right, right, right. So the agenda items are just hilarious, too. So I make everybody... I do a call for agenda items, and we've got a document that I, I write in Comic Sans to make sure it's <laughs> annoying. Uh, and, uh, Love it. The, it Non-ironic even, Comic Sans. 
Exactly. And uh, but anyway, one of the agenda items she put up is what mail client do you use? And she specifically said that she uses something called Edison Mail. And she uses it. it because it has a a uh, an unsubscribe thing that isn't actually interacting with the service that's doing it. It is simply throwing it away. Like the, the mail can keep it, coming, yeah. but you never have to see it. And that was an interesting idea. But I mean, it was like, oh, I got to go follow the money. And they have a very explicit description of why is this free? Are you tracking me? And it says, no, we're not. Here is how we are taking the data that we are getting from you and packaging it in a way that nobody is tracking you. And yet our wow. advertisers still can get this, can get a feel and a sense of what's working, but they don't know it's working for you. Oh, that's interesting. So it's quality control for their ads, but it's not tracking you. Yeah. Yeah. So they're getting paid by advertisers. I'm not sure where you see the ads because I haven't installed the app. But it, that's, that's very interesting. So that's like advertising climate instead of advertising weather. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Holistic. I like yeah. I like it. Interesting. Yeah. But, also, it, like but the, that was a great, great example of where, yeah, you can do this. You don't have to track me. And the fact that they're able to be upfront about their business model and make it a selling point means it's not creepy. Yeah. I have found a way to get get by the creepiness and the annoyance of seeing ads for stuff is here's what you do. Pick something you like, like USB or Thunderbolt interfaces. Go out and search a whole bunch of websites for it. And now all of the ads you see will be for those things that you actually enjoy looking at. Like just once a week, go out and search a bunch of cameras. You'll just see camera ads. I always see ads for the most recent thing I just bought. Which is okay, because that means they don't know you bought it. That is the silver lining. You're correct. Yeah, yeah, it's annoying because you just bought it, but you don't have to buy it. Just I know, but it seems Go look at vacuum cleaners. But then I, you I just spend even... <laughs> so little time on the public internet that the only time they track me is when I'm buying stuff. <laughs> That's the only time I show up. And then the, for the next month, it's like, oh, do you want to cat eye back the backlight for your bike? It's like, A, no, I just replaced the one I stupidly lost and I'm cranky at myself about. And B, you're reminding me about the fact that I stupidly <laughs> lost a bike light and I'm cranky about it. Thank you. So go do a search for cat litter, whatever it takes, just, you know, <laughs> orange shirts, whatever it is. <laughs> Yeah, I see you're looking at my camera. That that Dayglow yes. orange is very safe recycling. I would guess so, yeah. But it is very Dayglow. Anyway, um, so privacy nutrition labels, Facebook have won a temporary victory. And then the other thing that happened is Apple changed their terms of service for the App Store. Now, the media are completely obsessed about the stuff to do with gaming apps, for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. But we're going to ignore that completely and look at what else Apple said that almost no one's talking about. First one, no ads allowed on app clips. Good. Wait, remind us what app clips are, because they did that pretty quickly in the million and 12 things they announced at WWDC. They're the ability for a QR code to cause your phone to download a teeny part of an app to let you do some single action quickly. Like, so like say, a parking app or something? They yes, used as exactly an that. So you're, you're at a car okay. park. You need to pay for parking. You don't want a full app. You just want to pay for sodding parking. You just scan the little code. You get just the app snippet. Let's you, or the app clip, as Apple called it, let you pay for your parking and sod off. And it hasn't installed anything in your phone because maybe you're visiting a city. Not likely today, but, you know, bear with us. Right. Um, that you're never going to come back to. So why do you care that San Francisco have this great app? You're just passing through. I am uh, but- still getting emails 
from the the uh, train company that we we rented seats on to go from Paris to Belgium. Talus doesn't matter Talus. how many times beautiful I unsubscribe. Trains. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful trains. Um, Fabulous, but, yeah. but I don't get to go on trains in Paris right now. No. Okay, so no ads in app clips. No Good. ads in app clips. That's nice. Uh, another one that I thought would have been stating the blindingly obvious, but apparently it needs stating. Basically, apps can't extort people. You can't. Your app can't force users to do things like rate the app, accept tracking, watch a video, or click on an ad in exchange for a benefit, like being allowed to use the app at all, or oh. accessing certain functions, or getting paid. I have seen apps where you have an option, like pay five bucks or click on watch these three ads. Well, that's that's gone. So it's either you have a subscription or you don't. You don't get to, to say to people, do this, or, or you can't. I thought that was kind of an interesting trade-off. Maybe because that had an or, though, it would be allowed. Because you weren't that forced to watch those ads. Actually, no, that's a fair point. That is a fair point, actually. I mean, that's they trading may... my money for my time. Privacy or money, which I've always said is it a trade-off I like to be asked because I'll give you my money. Assuming your service is right, worth it's it. not necessarily privacy. It was no. watch this ad for our advertisers, which they may or may not be tracking you. I don't know, or pay five bucks. Well, okay, I'll spend five minutes. I don't want to spend five bucks. Yeah, I don't no, think that's right, the actually. worst yeah, idea. Fair. So it might still work if it had the or, like you said. if it had the or exactly. Yeah, and okay. the other thing they read, they read. They tightened up the wording on some sections, which obviously meant someone found a loophole. Uh, but existing bans on using highly sensitive data like health kit stuff and facial recognition data, they're not allowed to be used for advertising or data mining. So they'd sort of like double underlined those existing rules. They said, no, we really mean all of it. Okay. Yeah. So I thought that was worth mentioning, in, you know, in addition to the fact that there is there are mechanisms for having game stores in iOS now. Yeah, <laughs> ridiculous um, methods, but okay. <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. Um, yeah. I, it's, uh, I, I know what I want Apple to do, and that wasn't it. But it's better than nothing. Um, anyway, Microsoft are next on my list here. Microsoft have announced new tools to fight deep fakes. Um, hmm. The first tool is getting all of the press attention. It's something called Microsoft Video Authenticator, which, despite its name, can be used to analyze videos or photos and it will give you a confidence score as to whether or not it's real. So basically, it's level of reality. And I've realized I forgot to put the link in the show notes and deleted it from my pocket account. Oh, well, you have to take my word for it. Um, the link in the show notes goes to Microsoft's blog post. So that has all the details. It's, God, they don't write concise blog. They don't write concise press releases. Um but all the information is in the link that is in the show notes. Um, okay. So basically, you show it a video and it says, this is 95% likely to be genuine, or this is 5% likely to be genuine. Well, that's useful. Yeah. Uh, they also explain the AI that powers it and how they will be continuing to update and retrain the AI constantly because it is a cat and mouse game, obviously. So it will continue to evolve as the techniques evolve. But the second thing they announced, which got way less attention because it's not really all that media-friendly is they're partnering with large media groups to create a platform for effectively digitally signing pieces of media like video and photos so that and a browser extension, basically an API that can be used by other browsers themselves, hopefully, or extensions you can install into browsers. And no matter where on the internet you come across the video, if it's one of these videos that's been signed in this way, 
your browser can proactively say this really is from CNN, since we're just talking about them, and it has not been altered since CNN published it. Okay, so so if it says it absolutely is real, it absolutely is real. Correct. But if and that's it, all it doesn't, assert. it doesn't necessarily mean it's false. Correct. But if you have a situation where CNN say, everything we publish, we, not- we, we certify, and you get a video claiming to be CNN that fails to validate, well, that's mm. fishy is all fishiness. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is a really interesting way forward, but it's just starting, right? They're building these tools. They're building these partnerships. So this isn't ready, but it's a fascinating little bit of the press release that they're saying, this is what we're working on now, and here's our partners, and they go into the detail of what they're doing. Uh, th- lots of cool Azure stuff to power it and all that. So Yeah, well, and we don't have the big problem with deepfakes yet. We can feel right. it looming on the horizon, so they're they're accelerating, trying to get ahead of it. Yeah, and to me, it's two really good avenues of attack, right? Something for detecting fakes and something for mm-hmm. certifying true. Right, right. So something like uh, there was a video of a prominent politician in the United States where they slowed her, her the video down so it looked like yes. she was drunk or slurring her speech. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, she they made her look drunk, which was really right. unfair. Right, and... So this would have caught something like that. Like the video slowed down. Now, yeah. if you were, you know, paying a lot of attention, you would have noticed it, but you could have easily believed that video because it, you know, if you didn't know. So, yeah. Well, especially because it, it had actually all of the various lower thirds and stuff because mm-hmm. it was real. It was a it real was video. Messed with. Yeah. 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 But again, a digital signature will pick that straight up and your browser would say, nope. Mm-hmm. Not, not what it claims to be. So, you know, I think it's great to attack it from both ends, detect fakes and give a mechanism for certifying real. So I really like that. And then just by pure utter coincidence, because that's how the universe works, one of my favorite podcasts um, is 20,000 Hertz. They release very few episodes a year, but they're all superb. They did one on deep fakes for voice. Oh. And... I won't. I don't want to spoil the episode, but trust me, it's superb. Hmm. Um, and I will say no and more. And this is and the podcast again is called Twenty Thousand Hertz because that's the frequency range of human hearing. Oh, <laughs> nice! So Very you've cool. got a link to that episode directly. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, and another small thing: uh, Facebook's data transfer tool, which is one of the things that come out of GDPR, has gained the new skill. You can now transfer all of your data straight to your Dropbox. From Facebook. Oh. Oh. So, yeah, okay, nice. If you, if you want to get all of your photos out before you delete your account, you would use this tool to push all of the photos to your Dropbox and then you delete yet. your Facebook account. Okay. So it's nice, you know. It's, yeah. it's not earth-shattering, but it's nice. And then, I'm afraid there's two show notes with American flags next to them, and neither of them make me particularly <laughs> smiley. Um yeah. A new bill targeting Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, that is a very important act, which is the exact opposite of what most people think it does. And what it actually does is it allows platforms like Facebook to moderate content without being considered a publisher and without losing their safe harbor. Um, There's a new bill that basically says you're going to lose that protection unless you go through all of these loops, hoops and things. Basically, it's an attempt t- to limit moderation on Facebook and stuff because certain limit people moderation mit- on Facebook. So have there be less moderation? 
Correct. It's from people with metallic hats and a <laughs> persuasion of one direction that is not left, um, who believe that there's this mad conspiracy out to silence all of these really loud people on that side of the debate. It's it's not good. Uh, anyway, there's something called Fight for the Future from the... Um, sorry, Fight for the Future have launched a campaign called Save Online Freedom, and they're fighting both this new law, which is not a good law, and the uh, FCC regulation that's on its way thanks to an executive order from a few months ago that we talked about then, which is also not a good idea. So details in show notes to both the law and the campaign. Mm. Actually, no, sorry, I'm wrong. I put them in such an order that we could end happy. Portland. (laughs) Portland. The city of Portland has implemented what is being worldwide considered a leading example of how to regulate facial recognition. It is basically the best ban in the US by far. And even looking at it from abroad, it's being seen as an example for other countries or cities to follow. Ah, so, okay. Well done, Portland. I'm not surprised Portlandia would do something like that, but it's it's nice. So there we go. <laughs> Portlandia. Um, and I'm afraid to say I forgot to find a palate cleanser. So thank goodness. Well, I've got an idea. Story. Okay. I've got an idea. Um, we were just talking about safe harbor, and safe harbor is a, a problematic topic. It's it's very confusing. Yes. And the best explainer on the planet is Tom Merritt, and he has a show that I'm just ecstatic about. I'm angry that it's uh, at the end of a season and starting a new one later right now. But he did an episode in July on Safe Harbor that was really good. It's the kind of thing you might need to listen to seven times before you can go, oh, I now I totally understand. But he goes back through the originating laws and he quotes laws and stuff and explains what Safe Harbor actually is. And it's not like this is a rollicking good time, make you giggle episode, but it will make you know a little more. But the thing is, he has such a good sense of humor that even the dry topics are fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, The fun turn uh, of phrase, I like it a lot. It's a fabulous, fabulous show. They're short, too. I I don't remember how long this episode is. Nine minutes or something, usually. Yeah. uh, Oh, no, this one's longer, 18. Ooh, that's, but that's probably one of the longest ones. Yeah. Because <laughs> Wi-Fi 5 is like nine minutes, and that's 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 proper complicated, too. Wi-Fi 6. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see, I, I've even lost count, or X, Y, or Z, or whatever the hell it's called, <laughs> when it's not got its number. Yeah, but if you're... I, the, let me just read off the topics he did in the first season. One explains 5G. That is my favorite one so far. Yeah. It explains, uh, like, what is 5G and do I care? And it's very interesting. I did not have the right answer to that. He explains what ARM is. Which was, uh, you know, really complicated and very, very interesting. It has a lot of Apple references into it. So that was fun. Uh, I did a machine learning one, Wi-Fi 6, ultra wideband, teraflops, MAC addresses, Thunderbolt 4, DNS, and then a teaser. Teasers. <laughs> the teaser was mean. <laughs> you know, like it, it's a, as a first season goes, they were all strong episodes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've always said I could listen to Tom Merritt explain the phone book, but this is this is great because they're they're concise and tight and and answering things I didn't even realize I didn't completely understand. A lot of times, I thought, oh, I know this one. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, the 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 arm one stands out to me as something where I really I sort of kind of knew, but I'm way more crystallized when I was finished listening to it. And yeah. the, the, the Wi-Fi 6 one, the Bluetooth 4 one was actually really good because, not Bluetooth, Thunderbolt. The Thunderbolt 4 one was great because I get very confused with those Thunderbolt standards. 
So, yeah, yeah, you know, dear Tom, if you're listening, season two, please. <laughs> exactly. All right. See, there we had a palate cleanser. Indeed. Okay. Um. Well, that, that wraps us up for another fortnight, I guess. Um. Until next time. No, we're time, not talking everyone. about fortnight. Stop it, Bart. Oh, jeez. <laughs> There's a TH in my one. I don't spell it wrong. Unlike Epic. Um, <laughs> until next time, everyone I'm sure knows what to do. Stay patched so you stay secure. All right. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. I got to tell you, you guys got to come to the live show. They have been hilarious tonight. The gifs that are going by the conversations have been hysterical, but I'll tell you in just a moment how to do that. You must not forget to send in dumb questions. There haven't been any dumb questions in a long time. Dumb questions are those things that you figure everybody else knows the answer to, but you're just the only one who doesn't because there's always somebody who really does uh, have the same question. So send me your dumb questions, your comments and suggestions. You can always do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. We've talked about this before. Everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to do a Patreon uh, a weekly, monthly donation? podfeed.com slash Patreon. You want to be like uh, Christoph and Janet? Uh, you just want to do PayPal? podfeed.com slash PayPal. You want to join our Slack community? podfeed.com slash Slack. You like Facebook still? podfeed.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of that live show that I've been telling you about with all these silly gifs going by, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.